three-dimensional transforming musical linguistic objects. Greetings from Cyberdelic Space. This is Lorenzo, and I'm your host here in the Psychedelic Salon. And today I'm going to play a recording of a live salon that we had two weeks ago. Our guest that night was Dr. Rob Flannery, who spoke about the medical marijuana business. And as you listen with me right now, my guess is that you'll think of, uh, well, some other questions that we probably should have asked Dr. Rob. I know that I've come up with a few myself, so sometime next year we'll have him back for another round of questions, and if you think of one, well, just leave it as a comment in the program notes for this podcast, which you can find at psychedelicsalon.com. And now, here is Charles introducing our guest. Today we're we're talking to Dr. Robert Flannery. He's the first PhD in the U.S. with certified technical experience in growing commercial cannabis. He's the CEO of Dr. Rob Farms and the co-author of the Cannabis Grower's Handbook, The Complete Guide to Marijuana and Hemp Cultivation with the legendary Ed Rosenthal and activist Angela Baca. And uh, we also happen to go to high school together. So it's a little <laughs> bit of a little bit of a reunion here, uh, you know, in, in, in the salon this evening. But I guess... Excuse me, just one second. I, I've got to ask this because we won't get a chance later on. And the two of you guys in high school together... Please tell me you you snuck out behind the gym and shared a joint. I was a goody two-shoes in, in school, <laughs> all through college, too, because, you know, I mean, what, we've been, pred prop, we've been fed propaganda for how many, many decades. So. Uh, uh, Robbie, for what it's worth, I was 42 years old before I had my first toke, so don't feel bad. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry to interrupt you, Charles. Oh, no, I, no. I, no, no, I mean, we... We I both ask it. No, it's a it's a reasonable question, and you yeah. know, we we were both. Uh, neither one of us really kind of partook in the illicit uh, substances, you know, mm-hmm. until we were into our, you know, into our adulthoods, or yeah. at least into college. And and I guess that raises the question, Robbie how mm-hmm. how did cannabis enter your your field of existence? How did it enter your life? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, I I have a PhD in plant biology, right? So like the, the full the full spiel I like to say is I have a PhD in plant biology with an emphasis in environmental horticulture and a specific expertise in hydroponic crop optimization for cut flower production, controlled environment agriculture from UC Davis. Um, you know, That's very a mouthful. Of, there's a very, I have said a, a time or two, so, you know, I'm kind of, <laughs> kind of used to it, but, uh, uh, you know, very proud to say UC Davis was recently voted the number one plant science school on the planet by US News and World Report. So, you know, I was technically trained to grow cut flowers, which cannabis is nothing more than cut flower production, um, by the number one plant science school on the planet. And, uh, you know, when I was doing my PhD research, UC Davis being a public university, we always had cannabis growers coming in and, and asking questions. We're doing cutting edge hydroponic research. A lot of cannabis cultivation is done hydroponically as well. And so people kind of interested in what we're doing. Um, interestingly enough, when I was doing my PhD research, we would ask, what, what, what type of plant are you growing? What type of crop are you growing that you need help with? Uh, when the cannabis growers would come on campus and, uh, for some reason, they always say French basil, which by the way is not a thing. Um, unless you're growing basil in France, apparently, but, um, <laughs> but, uh, yeah, we all, we all knew what was going on, but, uh, you know, we say, Hey, we do cooperative extension, um, you know, outreach and we can come and help you out with your grows. You know, if you let us onto your farm and they're like, Oh no, 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 please do not come to my farm. Cause this is well before any type of legality was going on, even in California. You know, I always knew in the back of my mind, Hey, I'm, I am doing my PhD research on chrysanthemums and roses. And cannabis grows very similar to chrysanthemum. 
Um, however, cannabis is just another plant and it's, it's a rather benign plant in all honesty. And so I, I always kind of knew in the back of my mind that cannabis might be an option for me. And I knew that there's a lot of money to be had. And, and when it comes to, you know, money, uh, and, and, and revenue for agricultural products in the state of California, which I believe the majority of us are sitting in right now, you know, that's the number one agricultural product. You know, it, it, there's more money in cannabis than there is in dairy, which is the out, uh, outside of cannabis is the number one agricultural product in California. So it's, it's one of those things where it's just kind of in the back of my mind. Yeah, this might be, might be my avenue one day. And uh, so lo and behold, uh, I had a friend who sent me a job application said, Hey, this might be a perfect job for you. And it was for a production manager position in Spark in San Francisco. Uh, Spark, at least at the time I was there, was the largest vertically integrated dispensary in the state of California. You know, I, I go in there and I, I, you know, go through the interview and it's, it was like horticulture 101 questions. And, uh, you know, I kind of aced that interview. And the next day I received a phone call from the executive director at the time. And he said, uh, listen, we think you're overqualified for production manager position. So we're creating a production director position for you. Wow. So, uh, I oversaw every single aspect of production um, and for, for the company. That's, that's kind of how I got my foot in the door. And that was in 2013, which in cannabis years, I always like to say it's like uh, dog years. So, <laughs> so um, yeah, but that's kind of how I got my foot in the door. And the the origin story that you tell on your Dr. Rob Farms website yes. is um, is that your your mom was experiencing a medical issue and yeah. and you you were inspired to uh, to develop uh, cannabis to to uh, respond to that. So can can you speak a little bit to that? Yeah, of course. Um, you know, when I got into the cannabis industry, you know, in 2013, this is well before. The, the state regulations we saw in 2018 in the state of California, you know, from 1996, we always had some level of medical um, legality in the state, but it was, it was still a pretty gray area. A lot of uh, illicit growers still um, at that time, still today as well, but especially at that time, word got out that, hey, there's a, a nerd with three letters behind his name in the cannabis space. And so I started receiving phone calls to do consulting. You know, I would travel to these farms. I would, I would talk to the, to the farmers and oftentimes they would say, I, I don't want to tell you what we're using the crops because we're kind of embarrassed because they knew what they were using was poisonous. Um, and I oftentimes would be, well, I can tell you already what you're using um, just by the look of the plants, you know, things like that. And so it's it one of those things where uh, oftentimes would come across growers who are using a compound called mycobutanol. Uh, mycobutanol is uh, derived, let's just say, uh, it derived from the same technology that the Nazis used to... Uh, use at the concentration camps to gas uh, Jewish people back in the 40s, right? So mycobutanol is a compound that releases hydrogen cyanide. Um, it's a systemic uh, 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 pesticide. It's a fungicide. It's very, very effective. But, you know, when you heat it up, it releases hydrogen cyanide. Well, what do you do when you consume cannabis? You have to heat it up. And so this is a, a, a compound that I, I kept on telling people, like, listen, you cannot be using this. You're turning this medicine into poison. And I heard one of two uh, responses. It was either, well, what can I use instead? You know, because cannabis is, is unfortunately very susceptible to fungal infection. It was either, what can I use instead? Or it was, I don't care, which kind of, you know, blew my mind. You know, here we have farmers who are supposed to be growing a medicine for people and they're poisoning people. You know, fast forward a little bit now. I was in the dry cure space at Spark in San Francisco when I received a phone call from my mom. And my mom was letting me know that she was diagnosed with triple negative breast cancer. And just to let you know, she's uh, still, still around and kicking today. They caught it very early, luckily, and she's currently cancer-free. Uh, but she went through a couple of rounds of um, 
tumor removal and surgery. She had chemo and radiation therapy. And, you know, my mom went to college in the 60s, not even joking when I, I'm telling the story. She actually had this response. She was invited to a pot party and she thought she was going to a Tupperware showing party. So my mom, extremely naive when it comes to cannabis, I told my, I told my mom, I said, listen, mom, I can get you access to cannabis. I can, you know, get you some clean cannabis for you to consume. And she said, okay, that'd be great. However, I don't want to smoke. I don't want to vape. I only want edibles. And here I am in the dry cure space, literally surrounded by a, a literal ton of cannabis that I can't give to my mom um, because it's all meant for smokable and vapeable. And I'm thinking if I'm going to get access to cannabis that's clean and do this quickly for my mom, I'm going to have to source this from someone else. And I'm starting to think back to those farmers using microbutanol. And uh, I'm thinking to myself, am I about to poison my mom? And so it was one of those things where uh, that was like that light bulb moment. You know, I have this technical training. I have a very marketable, leverageable position that I, that I have being, you know, this nerd in the cannabis space. And I said, you know, this is that kind of idea for Doc Rob Farms and, uh, uh, you know, providing, you know, our, our motto is good science, clean cannabis, uh, using science to, to address a lot of the issues that cannabis growers and farmers have. What are some of the considerations that go into developing medical use cannabis and communicating for on the patient level what cannabis is right for what needs? Yeah, that's a great question. You know, when it comes to, you know, a lot, a lot of people say, you know, recreational or adult use cannabis versus medical use. What do I, what do, I do as a cultivator different to, to provide that medicine? I do nothing different. It is adult use and recreational use versus medicinal use, I think are just two sides to the same coin type of thing, where, you know, if you were to ask someone, why do you use cannabis um, for adult use purposes or recreational purposes? And oftentimes you hear the answer after a long day at work, it's nice to smoke a joint or, you know, smoke a bowl or take an edible and just take the edge off. Well, that's, that's a medicinal use. That is anxiety reduction. That's stress reduction. It helps me sleep at night. And so I always like to say that, you know, adult use is basically undiagnosed medical uh, uh, use, in my opinion. Um, and I think more and more people are getting to that point. But as a cultivator, I don't really do anything different. Now, having said that, there are some patients that require a significantly larger dose of THC and CBD and other, other, some of the other cannabinoids. And uh, uh, adult, right now, the regulations don't allow for adult use cannabis to have significantly higher THC content. And so if you go to a medicinal dispensary, you can get, you know, sometimes, you know, a thousand milligrams of THC for an edible and things along those lines. You know, a lot of cancer patients require a significant dose. You know, if you're just going to use like a, a recreational uh, dose, sometimes that's like five to 10 milligrams, maybe 15 milligrams. A lot of cancer patients are looking in the hundreds of thousands. Right. I, my, my friend who was visiting this weekend was mm -hmm. diagnosed with a rare eye cancer last mm -hmm. year and used Rick Simpson oil, yep. which is this, uh, well, perhaps you can explain it better than I can and, mm -hmm. and, and articulate how high-dose cannabis has a uh, significant medicinal uh, benefit. Yeah, absolutely. Um, now, I, I will, you know, full disclosure, I, I am a doctor, but that's a PhD in plant biology, so I'm not a medical doctor, um, or, or uh, my mother-in-law is in the other room, but uh, not a real doctor, according to my mother-in-law, but I, <laughs> I, I do have a PhD, um, so, I, you know, full disclosure, but however, that means I'm also quite scientifically literate. I do enjoy reading uh, the medical side of things as well. So I, I can speak to it. Rick Simpson oil, or sometimes people refer to it as RSO, is one of the first real um, complete extractions. And so when you do an extraction on, on cannabis, there are you know 113 known cannabinoids. Uh, the University of British Columbia just discovered another 21. 
uh, cannabinoids about you know two or three years ago. They're still uh, figuring out exactly what they uh, are. Um, we just discovered CBDP and THCP. So there's there over well over 140, 150 cannabinoids um, that we know of. Uh, and the terpenes actually have significant health benefits as well. Um, and the terpenes are what give it the flavors and the aromas. And, you know, cannabis has so many different types of smells. You know, there's, you know, 200 plus of those. Um, and they have medicinal value. Uh, what's interesting about Rick Simpson oil is it's not just a straight up distillate where, uh, or, or an isolate where I'm isolating the THC, uh, for use. So, you know, we tried that, what, back in the late 80s, early 90s with Marinol. Um, which was a THC pill, just, it was just an isolate of THC and it didn't really provide much benefit. And what we come, came to find out is it's really this entourage or ensemble effect of, of all the cannabinoids and terpenes working together to provide this medical benefit. And so Rick Simpson oil was, you know, that became famous as really the first oil that really focused on this complete extraction that has all of these uh, cannabinoids in them. You know, we really do see the best benefit. Uh, for medicinal value when you are doing this in concert, when, when all these cannabinoids are working together. A lot of the edibles, you'll, you'll get an edible that just has the THC in it. And there's nothing wrong with that. You know, honestly, THC by itself is still a, a quite strong antioxidant and anti-inflammatory, uh, especially in its raw form, its acid form. It's called THCA. Um, however, we really do find this, the biggest benefit when they're all kind of combined together, working together. And, and what, what kinds of benefits are, are you seeing? What are people going to high dose cannabis for in terms of what symptoms are they specifically getting relieved in, in this use or what kind of preventative or, mm-hmm. um, or palliative uh, measures um, are, are going, are, are they getting from these, uh, from these medicines? So that's a great question. And, and I think uh, uh, one, one of the answers I'll give is it's, it really depends on the physiology of the, of the, of the, the, the patient. And it also, the, the, the CB1 and CB2 receptors, um, which the cannabinoids bind to in the endocannabinoid system in our bodies, um, are found throughout the body, right? And so that's why there are so many ailments that cannabis can actually treat or uh, affect to some extent is because, you know, it's not just, you know, the CB1 receptor, which is primarily found in the nervous system, but, you know, the CB2 receptor is found throughout the digestive system the, and the immune system and things like that, you know, upregulating and da- downregulating those, those receptors um, really has a wide variety of effects. And so, and I just have to say real quick, I always thought it was funny that the federal government, uh, which claim, you know, which says that cannabis is a schedule one drug, which means it's both illegal and has no medical benefit. Um, the federal government also have, holds a patent for using cannabis use to treat the, the symptoms of multiple sclerosis. So it's kind of funny that they would, uh, you know, be somewhat, uh, uh, schizophrenic in that. And, uh, but, you know, I think we all kind of here understand, uh, what's going on with the federal government to some extent. Um, but, uh, but yeah, it's, it's a really wide variety. And what's interesting about cannabis too is we don't really know it's acute toxicity. So there's a term called LD50 or a lethal dose for 50% of a sample population would die from that lethal dose. And, you know, we know what the LD50 is for things that are very toxic, arsenic, cyanide, they're very low. You don't need much for it to have an acute fatal uh, effect. Um, we know what the LD50 is for sugar, for salt, for water. You can overdose on water. We don't really know what the LD50 is for cannabis. Um, some people have said that they believe it's around 150,000 grams, which is more than my body weight. So congratulations if you can consume more than my body weight in cannabis. But 
um, it's a it's a very benign medicine. So one thing that's nice about this medicine is that you can kind of explore um, very similar to my opinion in you know, LSD to some extent, very, very benign. And you can kind of just go out exploring and see what it does for you. Um, some people it doesn't work well with, and some people, they just need to find the right cultivar, cultivated variety, which is the, the science or nerd term for some people often uh, will call it the strain of cannabis. You know, we use the strains for, for fungi, for uh, bacteria and viruses. The proper term for plants is cultivar. So you have to find the right cultivar, which has the right chemotype, you know, the right chemical uh, combination of all those terpenes and, and, and cannabinoids that, you know, treat you uh, specifically. So it's one of those things where it has a wide variety of uh, symptoms that it can, it can treat. It's not all sunshine and roses. It's sometimes it can have uh, its own effects. You know, if you have too much THC, for example, it can cause anxiety. A little bit of CBD is a great anti-anxiety medicine. CBD by itself is uh, an antagonist to the THC consumption. So it's a very strong uh, uh, anti-anxiety medicine as well. And so there's, you have to find the right combination that works for you. But luckily, because this, because the plant is, is very benign and, and non-toxic, you can kind of go out exploring. But having said that, you can become uncomfortably high. I will fully admit that. And, uh, but you're not going to die. Uh, the, you know, when people overdose on opiates, it's because they, they're, you know, they, they stop breathing essentially. So, um, you know, the part of the brain that, uh, that controls our heart rate, our, our blood pressure, our, our breathing and, and things along those lines, uh, become affected and you, you stop breathing. And that's, you know, essentially how you die from opiate overdose. You can't overdose that way with cannabis because the CB1 receptors, uh, which are found in the nervous system are not found in that part of the brainstem. And so it, you know, you can have uh, your heart rate go up, but that's typically because cannabis is a vasodilator. Um, and so your blood pressure will go down and, and in response to your body to maintain homeostasis will increase your heart rate. So sometimes people will feel like their heart's racing and things like that, but it's not because of uh, they're about to have a heart attack or anything like that. It's actually because their blood pressure is dropping. So it's, it's, an interesting, it's a really interesting medicine. It really is. It, it blows my mind sometimes and I learn more and more about it. And so if you began, uh, Dr. Rob Farms, uh, in response to this, this particular issue, um, that, that, that your mother faced and have this, this sensibility about the plant as medicine, how does that inform your business values and the way that you, uh, you, you, you've developed your business in the years since you've established it? Yeah, that's, that's another great question. I mean, for me, it's, it's really about, it's really about providing clean medicine for patients. The whole concept of adult use versus medicinal use being really the same thing is, is, you know, informs me on like, Hey, um, just because someone is using it to go to a live music venue and, and have a great time, or if it's something that someone needs for anti-anxiety medicine, perfect example, we had a patient at Spark in San Francisco. He was a very high functioning uh, autistic individual, but his symptoms uh, kind of manifested as the inability to verbally speak. Uh, he, he did uh, a contract work at NASA Goddard, at Apple, at Google, just a very high functioning individual. And he would come in every morning because he needed to consume a little bit of high CBD cannabis, a particular cultivar called Canatonic. Great names, by the way. Some of these cultivar names, like Alaskan Thunderfuck, excuse my French, is not, doesn't sound like medicine to me. But Chernobyl, although it's a great medicine, does not sound like medicine to me, but, um, but yeah, Canatonic, another one of those. But he would come in, consume every morning, and, uh, uh, you know, at Spark, you can consume on site there. And I would, you know, set up his little rig for him, and, you know, he would come in, try out his medicine, 
about 90 seconds later, he just starts talking, no speech impediment, no slurs, nothing. Um, and so, you know, you see that type of that, that effect that this medicine has, and it's just mind blowing with what my mom is going through and how it's affected, how we do things at Doc Rob Farms is really like, you know, this is, this is a plant that helps people. Yeah. People, you know, like to get stoned and high, but there's nothing wrong with that. There's like, it, honestly, what's wrong with bringing joy to someone's life? I, I, I don't find that to be offensive in the least. And, and so we always you know, try to talk about this plant as it, it, this is truly medicine. We, we don't treat the plant like it's, this is our baby girl that we have to, you know, raise from the, no, no, no. We, we do understand that the plant is essentially little factories, but at the same, you know, producing cannabinoids and terpenes for us. Um, but at the same time, we, we respect that who's going to be using this medicine in the long, in the long run. And, uh, that, that I think has really affected how we, we, you know, grow the plant, find ourselves in the business and in the industry. Not a lot of people do it. And, and are you producing primarily, uh, for the, are you producing for, for medical and rec both or primarily for medical? And can you break down to those of us that don't understand the intense complications of what the cannabis business is, what you have to deal with on a daily basis? Absolutely. The, the biggest difference between medical and recreational uh, cannabis is how it's taxed. Um, literally that's, that's about it. I, I, I can grow, we're growing this one, um, cultivar right now which i'm a, a really big fan of it's you know gmo cookies some some of these names once again gmo a lot of people have uh their feelings about that as well but it's it's a great medicine it's just a great great medicine and it's testing at like 32 percent thc just a great nose on it and um you know when it comes to uh you know what we do for our uh, wholesale buyers that are uh in the recreational market versus the medicinal market is Pretty much nothing. It's essentially how it's taxed on the back end. I love that medicine though, because both the recreational market and the adult use marketers like all, all over it. They love it. So it's, it's one of those things where, you know, I, I want to try to provide for both. Right now, the adult use market is significantly larger than the medical use market in, in California. Uh, and I'm assuming it's going to probably stay that way for a long time because, you know, most people, even though they might be using cannabis for medicinal uses, it's for undiagnosed medicinal uses. Just essentially, we try to gear towards both. But of course, medicinal use has a special place in my heart because of my mom. Yeah. Are you are you able to have a bank account? Yes, we actually do. Um, uh, it's one of those things where we, we actually do foresee uh, decriminalization at the federal level coming up uh, relatively soon. People say it's, it's literally anywhere from 12 months to, it's, it's kind of like fusion energy, right? It's always 30 years away, no matter how, uh, <laughs> how far along you are. Um, but people now it's, it really does seem like it's a different thing. When I first started in the industry in 2013, they're like, we don't know when decriminalization is going to be. Now it's, it's really like, okay, it's probably 12 to 36 months out that we'll see some level of federal decriminalization. The, there's a banking act that's coming through the Senate that will allow for banking, even though they won't deschedule. The, the medicine, you know, and, and by the way, cocaine is a, uh, a schedule two drug, right? So that means it's, it, although it's legal, it does have a medical benefit. Cannabis is considered um, uh, worse than cocaine. So it's just one of those things where they won't even, dec- they won't uh, 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 deschedule it. However, we are, are going to see some banking support, um, but we do have banking uh, available to us. There are some banks out there that specialize in, in cannabis banking. And we're very appreciative of them. And, and, but yeah, we do, we do have that ability. So it's not all an all cash thing anymore for a lot of groups. Uh, you know, we always heard those horror stories. Uh, one of my favorites was, uh, it was, this actually occurred in San Francisco where, um, a dispensary was coming in to 
pay their uh, quarterly taxes. And gentleman walks in with, into the, uh, the, the, the local office where he can pay the local taxes in San Francisco. He has two duffel bags. He drops both bags and basically, you know, puts his hands up and says, I just want to publicly announce that, uh, I have a concealed weapon permit and I'm cur- currently carrying a concealed weapon and part of, you know, safety for my job, but I'm here to pay taxes on behalf of blah, blah, blah. And he comes in with $950,000 <laughs> and in cash. And the, the office, it took them 18 hours to process all that money. And they're like, listen, don't be wrong. We, we appreciate this, the, the tax income, but it's, it's un, it's unsustainable to, to have to deal with that amount of money all in cash. And so there really is a push. To, this is a safety issue too. You always hear about dispensaries being stood up and things like that for, you know, under gunfire and yada, yada. Because they're known to have a lot of cash on hand. You know, we, we really need to move away from that. You know, this, I, I do foresee cannabis kind of moving towards a, a, a wine model slash uh, pharmacy model where, you know, it's just considered, my, I got to go to the, down to the pharmacy and pick up some medicine, or I, I'm going to go down to the wine store and pick up my favorite varietal of, of wine or my favorite grower and, and winemaker, things like that. I really do see it happening like that. And it's eventually just becoming passe. I think fancy about it. Along those lines, here's an article that was in the paper this morning, why big tobacco could take over legal cannabis sooner than you think. Yeah. Uh, whether or not that's, that's uh, the sooner is an issue, the fact that big tobacco wants to come in, that's yeah. also going to get the legalization moving along pretty quick. How, how do you, do you see any uh, inroads that they're making? Because I'm hearing a lot of rumors about that here in California. Yeah, Philip Morris has been buying property in Northern California for a long time for, you know, thinking that, hey, this is going to be our next uh, uh, farm. We're not, we're not going to be growing tobacco on it. We're going to be growing cannabis. But uh, the way we see it is it's going to be like Budweiser, Bud Light, Coors, or, or, you know, if you're into, you know, your local beers, and especially here in Northern California, if you're going Pliny the Elder or, or Pliny the Elder, um, if you want to, you know, pronounce it properly, um, by Russian River, uh, you know, it really depends on what you're going for. You know, if you're a wine drinker, yeah, you can drink Mad Dog 2020, or you can drink Chateau Montalena. And we we think the same thing is going to happen in the cannabis industry, where you know, Philip Morris is going to come to town, the big tobacco is going to come to town. They're going to grow these on these massive farms, but there is a significant difference in growing cannabis on a huge farm versus in controlled environment agriculture versus greenhouse versus even an indoor grow. There's many good things and bad things about all those different styles of production. Uh, however, I, I will say that the quality of cannabis that comes out of a, a controlled environment grow where I can uh, inject CO2, uh, you know, plants use CO2 to um, create sugars to do the work that they need to create the THC and the yield. You know, THC is a 21 carbon molecule. Um, that carbon comes from CO2. You can't really inject CO2 in an outdoor grow. Um, there is some new technology that kind of is answering that, but, uh, you know, if you really want the high, uh, uh THC content medicine, uh, you kind of have to use controlled environment agriculture. And Philip Morris is going to likely be going towards the more Bud Light, Coors Light, Mickey Ultra, uh, uh style of production. And, and, you know, they'll have very small, uh, grows that are indoor. And so a lot of the specialty farmers, they're going to be um, growing the high uh, quality medicine is going to be closer to the, you know, microbrewery or micro micro winery style of production. And um, at that point, it's going to be about brand recognition and understanding that uh, you do it a little bit differently and in, in, in selling your story. So it, it is what it is. And I, I welcome it. I think it's, that's great. Honestly, I, I know it sounds crazy. A lot of 
cannabis consumers are upset by it. I, I personally have a lot of friends who are legacy farmers up in the uh, Emerald Triangle, and I don't want to see them go out of business. I think they're fantastic cultivators. And I want them to uh, set themselves apart from the, the bud lights of, of cannabis, and I think they can. Um, they just need, basically need to survive this first bout of inundation of, 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 of cheap flour. Essentially. How do we go about getting the word out about uh, the, the brands and the cultivators that uh, I know a lot of California cannabis is going out of the state, too. And I yeah. just don't know how to find out about a lot of these things. I'd like our, to let our audience know about that, too. You know, at this point, we have a really hard time advertising cannabis in general. Like you can't uh, I believe the city of Los Angeles is now making it illegal to or, or they're not no longer permitting, you know, big billboards for cannabis advertising. And so marketing, it has to be a little bit more organic. Instagram pages is one of the, the best and easiest uh, way to do it. Uh, however, Facebook and, and all their uh, know-how and, and, and glory will oftentimes take down uh, Instagram pages and Facebook pages for cannabis branding. So it's, it's difficult to kind of do it. A lot of it is word of mouth. A lot of it is, you know, you going into the dispensary and the bud tenders are, are, are talking you know, about, hey, this particular brand is great. You know, the, here's their story. What we also have done is we've uh, brought people, you know, uh, brand representatives into the dispensaries to kind of just talk about the branding and things like that. We are kind of shifting more and more towards a service model uh, to provide a service for other cultivators and other brands. Um, and that's been really successful for us so far. Uh, so we're pretty excited by that. So we're doing that, the less of that marketing and relying on other people to kind of do that. Just like the old days, word of mouth. <laughs> yeah, it, honestly, it really is. What are the chances when decarboxylating THC, A, of the acetyl migrating to the adjacent oxygen? So I have not seen that. Um, I've not really seen that occurring. It's just one of those things where, you know, the activation energy required to decarboxylate THCA has that, like, that threshold where the COOH pops off and H gets, gets, you know, pop back on to that, that carbon. And I've never really seen it move to that oxygen. However, it doesn't mean it doesn't happen. I, I would suggest that uh, it probably does happen, but on a, a very low amount or small amount for the uh, THCA uh, decarboxylation, but uh, it's it's one of those things where I've never seen any science to suggest any papers that recommend uh, that this does occur on a, on a high common basis, but I, I wouldn't be surprised if it did. If the deacylation is done in a closed container under pressure, would that en- enhance the chances of that uh, happening? It would, because uh, the activation energy required. We've had, uh, um, however, we've had reports of, uh, yeah, yeah. of that. Yep. And, I mean, the, what I would say is like, I have not seen any science um, any papers or anything like that that talk about that. Um, I work with uh, a professor at UC Davis by the name of Dr. Don Land, um, and he works with Steep Hill uh, uh, Laboratories. And I, I usually talk to him about these types of things. On my side, you know, I'm the plant nerd. I, I definitely understand the chemistry behind it, but uh, I've not seen it. Ha- I've not seen any research to support that. However, that doesn't mean it doesn't exist. And it does definitely make sense that it could. Chemical reactions, oftentimes, it's literally just randomness. And so in any type of random situation, entropy happens, right? You can't stop the second law of thermodynamics. And if you give enough energy into a, a system, chances are something like that can happen. And I would assume that that is going to be happening. Just I don't really think it happens on a large scale. Let's uh, make some space for Mike. Go ahead, Mike. Well, New Mexico just recently uh, legalized uh, use of, of cannabis. And 
it's it's a very dry state, not much water, not a a lot of places to grow stuff. I don't I don't see the ability to meet demand. I think there's going to be huge demand here. And so yeah. as things move forward, as more states legalize cannabis, how do you see them meeting the demand uh, if they can't meet, the, you know, do the supply from their own state? That's a great question. I, I think that when we see federal decriminalization occurring, we're going to have interstate commerce occurring as well. Well, I don't think I know that will occur. Um, California is likely going to be supplying the vast majority of the United States, if not the world. California in and of itself is a brand. Wine grapes are, are grown in all 50 states. Yes, there are wine grapes growing in Alaska as well. But, you know, if you're a, a wine consumer in Omaha, Nebraska, and you go into a wine shop and you see a, a wine grape that was produced out of uh, South Dakota versus one that's in California, chances are you're going to gravitate towards California wine. I'm I'm fairly positive the same thing's going to happen to to cannabis. Now, having said that, for local produ- production, I, I'm a big fan of urban horticulture. I, I think that is the future of agriculture is going to be local. California really is uh, uh, one of the the biggest agricultural powerhouses in the world, and it's going to continue to be like that for quite some time. However, where are the population densities? You know, in Chicago and New York and you know places like that where Cannabis is going to be easy to grow there, but you can grow it in controlled environment agriculture. And the same thing can be done in New Mexico. Although it's fairly dry there, um, you know, cannabis does use a decent amount of water. However, hydroponic production really does, you know, the water use efficiency skyrockets in hydroponic production. You know, you can get like 95% water use efficiency in a hydroponic system. And so you're literally just losing 5% every time you fertigate. And it's, it, it is kind of mind blowing uh, how efficient it can be. You know, of course that comes at the cost of, you know, higher electricity bills and things like that. But at the same time, we're seeing a lot of renewable energy being poured into cannabis production too. I really do think to answer your question, I think controlled environment agriculture is going to provide a tremendous amount of uh, the local horticulture for cannabis, but also places like California are really going to be supplying a tremendous amount of cannabis to the world. Great. Well, don't forget there's a lot of opportunity here. If you're running a little business, so. uh, you know we we're we're always interested in talking about doing consulting and 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 whatnot and management for farms. So uh, you know, hey, if you've got a farm, you want to help uh, with production. I know someone who knows how to grow. <laughs> I know a guy. <laughs> I know a guy. Let's uh, let let let's make space for Manassas. Go ahead, Manassas. Oh, hey there. I'm sure you know about all these different cannabinoids. What can you say just to like to have some clarity on? Uh, THCO and HHC? Sure. So there are a lot of cannabinoids that the plant produces and they all have different effects on us, you know, our, our physiology. So THCO is, is, you know, along the same lines of THCP that we, we, we just recently discovered. And uh, a lot of the, the THC, like, you know, these are, these are large compounds. Like I said, THC is a 21 carbon molecule. Um, these are diterpenes. You know, typically uh, the, the 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 CB1 receptor, which THC binds to, has a very strong affinity. THC has a very strong affinity for it. And the THCO, uh, the, TH, the THCP is different. THCP has, actually has a higher affinity, so it takes less of it to have the same effect as THC. Um, however, most of the other compounds, the cannabinoids, have uh, lower affinities to bind to the CB1 receptor. You know, CBD actually is. Uh, interesting, and a lot of the, um, a lot of the other cannabinoids uh, mimic either THC or CBD. Um, those are like the kind of the primary cannabinoids that we first learned about, and they kind of 
mimic them as well because they're instead of being a 21 carbon molecule, it's like a 19 carbon molecule. It's a 17 carbon molecule. It's a 15 carbon molecule. So the, the fatty acid chain on the end kind of gets shorter and shorter. Um, but that, that changes its ability to, to bind to the CB1 receptors. Uh, CBD in itself, so uh, it's actually what's called an allosteric CB1 inhibitor. And so what that means that causes it a little bit more, it, uh, makes it a little bit more difficult for THC to bind to the CB1 receptors. Um, the HHC, I'm actually not too familiar with, so I can't really speak to that too much, but it's one of those things where we have this, these, these cannabinoids are constantly being discovered. And uh, like, for example, THCV, you know, most people think of cannabis making you hungry. THCV is actually an appetite suppressant, right. um, you know, so it's like, there are all these different things that they can do and have all these different effects. What, like I was talking about earlier, what's great about cannabis is it's being so benign. It's not really something that is good. You're going to have an overdose from, so you can go out and explore and see what works for you. Um, one of the things I'm most interested in, in working on in future edible production is having that backbone of that complete entourage effect with all the different types of cannabinoids. And, but like focusing on like a THCV or a, a CBG, a CBN, a THCP, but also THCV is, I think, personally, the fascinating cannabinoid. And I think we're just starting to scratch the surface on what these different cannabinoids really can do for us. Um, we've focused on THC for such a long period of time. I think it's actually been to the detriment, though, of, of the other cannabinoids. For, for those of us who are old enough to remember, um, I'm not even including myself on this, but the, those of us who consumed cannabis in the 60s and 70s had a very different experience uh, smoking cannabis than or consuming cannabis than what we have going on now. The breeders really focused on THC, and it really is the genetics of the plant that really derive the um, the, the cannabinoid profiles. And, and so, you know, we focused on THC for such a long time because that was the first one we discovered that the, the breeders started, you know, saying, hey, right now, this cannabis cultivar that I have produces t- a, a flower to a THC content around two to 4%. Well, we're producing some at 32%, 33, 34% now. Um, and it's a very different high, a very different feeling. I, I personally think that there's going to be a backlash against that. And there's going to be kind of, you know, going back towards the lower THC content because that's, that medicine is just as valuable in my opinion as anything else. Having that entourage effect is, is very important. So if I am increasing the production of THC, that means I'm, I'm doing it at the sacrifice of other cannabinoids. You know, THC, like I said, THC is a 21 carbon molecule. CBD also a 21 carbon molecule. There's only so much carbon to go around. And in, in, in plant physiology, we actually call it a carbon budget. So like if you, you know, if you have your monthly budget, I have so many dollars I can use on rent or food, uh, medical benefit, yada, yada. I, at the end of the, the month, I have X amount of money to, for recreation. Well, the plant's the same way. If, if the plant is genetically predisposed to just focus on THC, that carbon, that carbon budget, you have less carbon available for other things to do. That usually, you know, when we focus on THC in the, in the plant breeding, we basically are doing this at the, at the expense of all the other cannabinoids. So, the, the, the cannabinoid research that's coming out, that's starting to come out, uh, is, is really fascinating in my opinion, but it is absolutely in its infancy. It's, it's very exciting time to be working cannabis because there is just so much to learn. And as a, as a nerd, as a scientist, as a researcher, I, I'm just fascinated by all the things that we have yet to learn. And, and it's, and it's starting to come out and it's very exciting. Go ahead, Manassas. I'm sorry. You said a uh, THCP as in like peanut? 
Yes, as, as in peanut. And it's like 20, it has like a 20x affinity to the CB1 receptor that THC does. Um, oh. Where someone would need a, a five milligrams of THC to get a, a benefit, we're, we're looking at 20x less on that to, to get the same effect. It's, it's pretty oh. significant. In some article I read that uh, THCO acetate, right, is supposed to be for some people like 10 to 20 times stronger than THC. THC, you know, Delta 8 and mm-hmm. Delta 9, it didn't really by which, and Delta 8 and Delta 10 are becoming a rave now, too. Yeah. I mean, you talk about something else that's quite interesting, too, you know, Delta 8 versus Delta 9. So the THC that we all know and love is that Delta 9, right? Um, but Delta 8 also has a very similar effect to Delta 9. And all that all that Delta 8 versus Delta 9 really means is THC being a diterpene, all that, you know, these are terpenoids. These are just fancy chemistry names, right? There's a carbon ring. There's two carbon rings actually in THC, and it's where the double bonds and the carbon actually occur in that ring. Does it happen on the ninth carbon or the eighth carbon? And so delta nine is what we typically consume. Delta eight can actually be uh, produced from CBD. Well, you know, CBD. A lot of people you can produce that from hemp, and right now under the current farm bill, you can produce hemp legally in any state now. And so people's like, okay, well, I'll just produce CBD and then convert that over to delta eight. Delta nine is what's illegal. Delta eight is really isn't illegal. Well, yeah, I live in Texas now, and now they're trying to govern it to be illegal. You know, um, they are very much so because they discovered, hey, there's this loophole where I can grow hemp, produce CBD, and then convert it to delta eight and have a similar effect to THC. Uh, not the same, but similar. And uh, uh, it, it's kind of those things where you know there's a loophole that they're trying to plug up now. And one thing I will say. A lot of people say like, well, I don't want CBD that's derived from hemp or I don't want, you know, cannabis derived from, from hemp. I want it from derived from cannabis. Well, there's two things I want to say about this. First of all, a molecule does not know its mother. So uh, CBD that comes from hemp versus cannabis versus yeast. There's a, a lab at UC Berkeley right now that's starting to produce cannabinoids with, with yeast. A molecule does not know its mother. So if you, if you're consuming CBD isolate that comes from hemp versus Cannabis versus yeast, your body knows no different. And secondly, I would say the biggest difference between hemp and cannabis is the name. It's like uh, cannabis is, is the scientific name. That's the, the Latin term for it. Hemp is actually an old English term. So the etymology literally is the, the biggest difference in the plant. But it's like saying, are you growing a red rose or a white rose? Well, they're both roses, right? You know, <laughs> are you growing cannabis or, or hemp? It's, they're both cannabis. Hemp is, is cannabis that is, has a THC content less than 0.3%. That is how it's defined by the federal government here, right? And uh, it, like, for example, in Thailand, hemp is defined as cannabis that has uh, a THC less than 1%. So, you know, the, the governments haven't really decided what really how to define it, but they are the same plants, essentially. There really is only one gene that differentiates cannabis and hemp in all honesty and that's the the thca synthase enzyme that is down regulated in hemp uh so it's really not that big of a difference you, you know robbie uh sasha shulgin would have loved you because <laughs> i i've sat in a couple of discussions where he and terrence argued the benefits of the molecule versus the plant yep. <laughs> and a molecule doesn't know its mother i'm the, i'm sure he would have said he wished he'd come up with that one that's beautiful <laughs> <laughs> yep i mean it's it's true like it's 
you know, uh, the molecule conformation of that molecule is the same, regardless of which factory it rolled out of. It's kind of like if you're if you're producing Coca-Cola, the Coca-Cola in, 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 in China better taste the same as Coca-Cola out of Atlanta, uh, because they go to great efforts to make it taste the same. And that factory is just doing the same thing over and over and over again. Well, the biosignal pathways that, that are what control the production of these molecules are all the same. It just, are they housed in a, a factory in Atlanta or are they housed in a factory out in, you know, wherever? Uh, it, it really is. It doesn't really matter where it's housed. It's just the same machine is going on on the inside. So I see how uh, how it is that you arrived at uh, collaborating with the legendary uh, Ed Rosenthal in his book. Can you talk a little bit about the new edition of the Cannabis Cultivator's Guide and, and yeah. what folks are finding it and, and what your contributions were to it? Yeah, absolutely. Um, uh, for those of you who don't know who Ed Rosenthal is, I, I definitely recommend you, you know, go to Wikipedia, look up his name. Um, you'll see my, you'll see one of my favorite photos of him. He has a joint in his mouth and Snoop Dogg is lighting it for him. So like he's, he's a legend. Uh, I was, I just did a clubhouse event with him not too long ago and he told a story which I hadn't, or actually someone else told the story and Ed never told me this, but he smoked Willie Nelson under the table. Did not know that. So, uh, you know, this is how legendary this gentleman is. Um, he's been writing cannabis cultivation books since the 1970s. Ed and I met because we, we're seeing each other at the same conferences. He's always been a huge fan of science. And, you know, there's a lot of mythology around cannabis cultivation, cannabis in general. However, science is the best way to a- answer questions that we all have, right? I, w- I gave a talk at the Cannabis Science Conference in Portland, Oregon. Oh, gosh, probably about four years ago now. And uh, he saw my talk and he says, hey, I want to talk to you. And we just kind of formed a friendship. And uh, he's like, you know, I want to do the next uh, edition of my my seminal book, which, which was at the time they called the Marijuana Growers Handbook. I had him change it to Cannabis Growers Handbook because uh, in the cannabis industry, marijuana is actually kind of a four-letter word. It's it's a it's a racist term, really, that the Harry Anslingers of the world used to make white people afraid of this, uh, you know, the devil's lettuce, right? So cannabis is a scientific term. That's what we changed it to. And he was totally open to that. One thing that's different about this book is that, uh, you know, I brought 11 different PhDs to provide content for it. And so it's a strong, strong, strong science basis of, of, of what we're doing in this, in this book. Most, uh, most grower handbooks, you know, or like cannabis Bibles and things like that. Perfect example is like there's a book out there called the cannabis Bible and Ed Rosenthal and I both feel like Bible is talking about stories. And oftentimes for a lot of people understand, you know, a lot of those stories aren't really true. This is about science. You know, this is not about uh, mythology or anything like that. We talk about a lot of the history of cannabis and, uh, and whatnot, you know, and we have some fun stuff. I mean, Tommy Chong wrote our foreword and things like that. So, you know, we have a lot of uh, fun stuff in there as well. But, you know, we talk about the history of cannabis cultivation, but we also really get, dive in deep on how to optimize your production. If you're growing at home, one, a, a single plant in a closet, or if you're growing on a large scale, like uh, some of our facilities that, uh, you, know, we're, you know, we're working with 10,000, 20,000, 30,000 plants at a time. So it really is about uh, providing science to the industry. That's really cool. Congratulations on that credit. Really appreciate it. Honestly, I'm extremely humbled. I never thought I would write a book like this, but now that I've done it, I'm like, it's like a, it's addictive. I'm like, okay, what's the next book? What are we doing next? There's a picture I took of Ed at the 2006 uh, Burning Man Planque Norte with uh, there's Rick Doblin in the background yep. and yep. Uh, uh, I can't remember who the other people are, but uh, anyhow, he he uh, he's he is a, a deep and long lo- lo- loving member of this community. I'll tell you what. 
he is one of the the kindest, just most intelligent individuals in this industry. He's, he's yeah, I, I like to say that in this industry, we are standing on the shoulders of giants. He is one of those giants, in my opinion. For sure. Um, there are a lot of people that I have to give thanks to, to just, you know, say like, yeah, I work in the cannabis industry and, and, and you know, what I'm doing is, is I, I wouldn't be able to do it without them. He's definitely one of those giants. Rob, a, f- a few questions. Uh, one, what does your PhD thesis advisors now think about you? And two, um, I find myself walking through cannabis stores looking at gummies and they say 5% THC plus or minus CBD. But these things, Rick Simpson oil, complete extracts of the plant, are those readily available now in gummies? And can you expect quite different uh, results from them? For sure. As for my PhD advisors, I, I studied underneath the the amazing Dr. Heiner Leith. He, he still is a professor at UC Davis. You know, most academics see cannabis as an, another plant. There's like, yeah, <laughs> this is, I could be, you know, for, for them, most academics, it's more about I'm interested in the uh, discovering the process, right? If the model plant is a rose, it's a chrysanthemum, it's a Gerber daisy, it's uh, a cannabis. Nah, I don't care. I'm interested in, you know, the, the fundamental science behind it. You know, so he, you know, he's been to my facilities. I still have a great relationship with him. Uh, Heiner is is a dear friend. I owe a lot to him. Uh, now, speaking about uh, the edibles, you've got certain percentages of, I would say it's probably not percentages you're looking at. It's probably uh, milligrams that you're looking at. And so it's not, yeah. it's not a, a relative number. It's an absolute number, uh, you know, with a little bit of, of, of CBD Oftentimes people will take isolates. They will isolate THC or CBD or, or some type of combination from the plant. They'll extract that out, isolate it out, and just kind of give you a sense of what that really means in an analogous term. I always like to use the alcohol in, alcohol industry for kind of an, analogies. Uh, THC or cannabis flower is kind of like, okay, I made some beer and I'm drinking some beer. It's low uh, percentage of ABV. I could distill that beer down or I can d- drink wine and, and, and distill that down into brandy. I can just, you know, distill it down and, and make a distillate. So you increase the concentration of ABV or your, your ABV. And it's the same thing for you know, cannabis to some extent. Now, if I were making moonshine, that's more like making an isolate. Well, in, you know, there's only one inebriating molecule in, in, in alcohol, right? And that's ethanol. Cannabis has hundreds of molecules that we're really interested in, in extracting out. And so, you know, when you do an isolate, it's, you're not just isolating THC. It could be any number one of things. But there really, really, really is something to be said about this entourage or ensemble effect of all the cannabinoids and terpenes working in concert together to provide the medicinal relief or, or symptom relief. They work great together. They oftentimes will increase the uh, uh, perfect example is myrcene, which is one of the biggest terpenes found in cannabis. It has been found that myrcene increases the, the permeability of THC and the other major cannabinoids uh, across the blood brain barrier. And so consuming myrcene before consuming cannabis uh, tends to get you medicated sooner and at a, a you know, faster and at a greater uh, intensity. Um, and so, you know, it's, it's all working together um, against our, our chemistry and physiologies uh, for our benefit for the most part. But uh, yeah, the isolates, they still have their benefits. You know, CBD by itself is uh, a partial agonist to the uh, serotonin receptor. You know, we have seen uh, medical studies showing that 
it is, is now has been recently discovered that uh, roughly 33% of women who are suffering through postpartum depression, uh, the reason why they're suffering through that is due to a serotonin deficiency. And so they're just not getting enough serotonin, essentially. Well, CBD can bind to the serotonin receptor. And so some relief can be had by just CBD isolate by itself. So there is something to be said about that, but we really do find a greater benefit with all of all, you know, that entourage effect. Hey, uh, so I'm from Canada, mm-hmm. uh, where it's legal. Yep. And I order from these websites uh, where it's quite cheap. Like sometimes, I mean, it's like $65 an ounce. Mm-hmm. Um, is there a possibility or should I be worried about poisoning myself per se? Like, mm-hmm. that, No, that's a great question. Honestly, uh, I, I think before the regulatory environment came you know, to what it is today, especially in Canada. Uh, Canada's regulatory market is a little bit more mature than we, what we have here in California, but everything has to be tested. If you do not have a, a compromised immune system, you are even in, a, in, an, in an even better space as well. You know, that's one of the, the biggest issues we'll find in even regulated cannabis is if you have a, a large number of fungal spores coming along with your cannabis, for the most part, an average individual with, who's healthy, uh, doesn't have a compromised immune system, you don't have to worry about that. But sometimes that is an issue. And that's the only thing that really gets by the regulations at this point. Everything has to be tested for uh, that mycobutanol. They have to be tested for like paclobutrazol, which is, which is a suspected mutagen, um, which is, this is a plant growth regulator that's used for ornamental crops and things like that. But uh, for the most part, you're pretty safe. The only real fungal problem that we see that uh, can affect someone with a non-compromised immune system is a uh, black mold or aspergillus niger, but the aspergillus niger is tested for as well. Uh, now, having said that, we, we're surrounded by these spores all the time. Um, there's not, no way you can get around it. So even if you're not, if you're a non-smoker and you just happen to be walking out in nature, you're breathing them in. It's just that you would focus that in there, but I would not be too concerned, even for inexpensive uh, product. In Canada, what's going on is you've got a really large supply going on now. I think it was back in 2015 or 2016, uh, there were 35,000 patients in, in all of Canada, whereas in California, we had like 3.6 million. And so the, the, the demand in Canada, although large, is, is way outweighed by the supply. And so that's why it's a, the, the, the pricing is depressed. But by no means is it bad quality, in my opinion. Uh, Robbie, I wanted to ask you something about the effect of uh, preparation on these various compounds. Mm-hmm. For instance, in in one case, the herb, the flowers are dried, mm-hmm. and then perhaps they're used for edibles mm-hmm. by sautéing in butter or oil or something yeah. like that. And I experimented this year. I took green flour and put it right in the pan with some coconut oil yep. because I didn't want to go through the whole drying process. And it made some pretty wonderful stuff. Yes. And I just wonder if if some of these compounds are debilitated in the drying process or this, that, or the other. And then one other factor is the heat. Cooking with oil, I, I wish I had really done a better experiment to know what temperature it was at, but it was well above, I don't, what's the decarboxylation temperature, like 180 or something? 
I don't recall uh, the deoxygenation okay. uh, temperature. However, so so what? I, I will answer the um, your, your question about drying and does that affect the the compounds? The, the cannabinoids and the terpenes are all terpenoids, right? So there's a class of compounds called terpenoids, and these are all you know waxy, oily compounds. They're nonpolar uh, molecules, and so that's why you have to use an oil or a butter to to cook it in because it dissolves into that oil. Now. Having said that, some of the terpenes are volatile organic compounds, so they're VOCs. THC and CBD doesn't really volatize, but uh, you can have some of the monoterpenes, which are the smallest terpenes, uh, volatize in a temperature as low as 70 degrees. So what you did by not by skipping the drying process was making sure that you had more terpenes in your product. When, when you dry cannabis, so for those of you who don't know, when, you, when I harvest a cannabis plant, it's not smokable immediately. You have to dry it and cure it, um, much like you do tobacco. Um, garlic is actually very similarly dried and cured as cannabis is, for those of you who know how to dry and cure garlic. But it's very similar. Uh, it's a cold, dry and cure process where like tobacco is a hot or warm dry and cure process. And the reason why it's a cold, dry and cure process for cannabis is because we want to decrease the chance of volatization of those terpenes. Now, over time, those terpenes will volatize. Every time you smell cannabis, yeah. what you're sensing are those those terpenes that have volatized off past your nasal passage. And, you know, we sense them in our nasal passage. Well, once I breathe it in, it's not going back into the flower. And they just happen to have a high concentration of it in there. So it does smell for a good long period of time. But if you were to harvest a plant and immediately put it into a product to preserve those terpenes and what we call, what we do in the, the cannabis industry now more and more is that we pr- produce a product called a fresh frozen product. Literally, we will cut it down and freeze it immediately. And then we'll do an extraction off of that. It's a, it's a much more robust aroma and flavor on that because you have less of that volatized uh, terpene coming off it. Now, having said that, the aging and oxidation process also does bring out a more complex aroma and flavor in cannabis as well. So it's, it's a different thing. It's not, not, not one is better or, 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 or worse. It's just, you know, what you personally prefer. I always like to say as soon as you harvest that plant, you're instantly switching from terpene production mode to terpene retention mode. So the more terpenes you retain in the flower, the better. So by you skipping the dry cure process, you are actually retaining more, more of those terpenes. It doesn't affect the, the, the cannabinoids at, at all. The cannabinoids are not really going to be moving at that point. Um, they're not going to be volatizing off because they're, they're large molecules and it requires for it to volatize. And that's why you have to smoke it or vaporize it. You have to really get it hot. But also, like you mentioned, um, you know, the plant itself does not produce THC. It produces THCA. So that is the acid form. It has a carboxyl group on the end of it. And, and you know, THCA does not bind to the CB1 receptor. So you don't feel that euphoria. It's a, a very strong anti-inflammatory agent and antioxidant as well, though, which is great. However, to, to feel that euphoria that is associated with THC consumption, you have to decarboxylate it. And so by cooking it, uh, heating it up, or when you smoke or vaporize it, it does that for you. I forget what the temperature is. It, I think I thought it was in the, closer to the 300 degree Fahrenheit range. That could yeah. very well be right, because I'm sure, you know, with boiling anything with water, yeah. you can't get over 212. Exactly right. Yep. But yep. if with oil, good God, you know, I, I had a very low flame. So, yep. but it must have been at least 300, yep. maybe 350. And, and what's interesting too is some of the cannabinoids, they will decarboxylate and volatize at different temperatures too. So there are vaporizers that will say, okay, I want to focus on the specific cannabinoid. And so you, you get to right at that temperature. And it's kind of interesting, unique. I mean, there's so much to be learned 
about around this plant and this flower. Um, we're, we're just, you know, it's virgin territory for research when it really is. You're seeing that this is in its infancy, the, our understanding of cannabis and, mm-hmm. and, uh, and, and how to cultivate and be in partnership with it on a, on a mass level. And so yeah. what are some of the more exciting aspects of the, the research into cannabis and where do you envision us being by say 2030 as a culture in relationship with this medicine? When I say it's in its infancy, I say what I really am talking about is the infancy of really introducing the science. There's a lot of anecdotal evidence for generations of what this plant can and cannot do. And I, I believe it was at the Chinese pharmacopoeia from like 3500 BC, which talked about cannabis being the most important of all medicine. Cannabis evolved in the Tibetan plateau hundreds of thousands of years ago, I think it was. But it essentially, we pretty much as humans have evolved with this plant. Wherever humans have gone, the plant has kind of followed. So we've we have like a, a ancestral knowledge of what this plant can do and can't do. However, what I'm just talking about on the infancy side of it is, is really applying rigorous scientific research and you know doing statistical analysis. Did it have this effect? Did it have that effect? And the the specific research I'm interested in is on the cultivation side, um, making it more efficient to grow this plant, making it so that more plant, more people can grow the plant. I, I, I truly, truly do believe that the more people that consume this plant, the better this world will be. Will be. I, I really do believe that. Call me naive or whatever, but I do believe that. I, I do believe also that science or, or knowledge is power. You know, scientia potentia est, right? That bastardized Latin version of science is, or knowledge is power. Where does that come from? It comes from science. We're at the infancy of really learning about it. And when it comes to the type of research I'm primarily interested in, for me, it's the whole plant physiology questions. There are photoreceptors in the plant that when you activate them, you can see roughly a 33% increase in the potency. And a lot of cultivators don't know how to affect those photoreceptors. And um, I actually just earlier today was writing proposals around doing some research around that. Those are the things that really get me excited is, is just kind of learning more how to manipulate the plant. I like to say that we give these plants tough love. They're little factories. They're not, they aren't little, our little babies. And, you know, and the reason why I say that is because the terpene and cannabinoid profile, uh, I'm sorry, biosignal pathways are very close related to stress responses in the plant. And so I, I like to figure out how do we stress this plant out without killing it? So that's the type of research I'm mostly interested in. You know, 2030, which I, I just realized that we're basically eight years away from now almost. I, I personally feel that cannabis is going to continue to be more of just mainstream and something that is kind of passe. Charles, you live in San Francisco. How many times you walk on the street and you smell cannabis smoke somewhere, right? It's it's pretty apparent now. And I think that's going to come more and more. San Francisco is an anomaly. Probably always will be. I believe it's going to become more like more and more like that as as we move forward. I think a lot of the old guard who would never touch cannabis with a 10 foot pole are, are, are unfortunately going away uh, because of that propaganda that they've been fed their entire lives. And I think a lot of the, the, the younger people coming in and discovering cannabis for the first time are really realizing that this is a benign medicine and very, very helpful. Interestingly enough, the largest growing market uh, for cannabis consumption in the United States are female baby boomers. That is the fastest growing market in, in currently. And I, I do believe that we are going to be seeing more and more people just saying like, yeah, you know, it's, it's just a medicine. Perfect example is my mom who, you know, once again, went to college in the sixties, thought it was a pot party she was, or a Tupperware party she was going to when she was invited to that pot party. She consumes cannabis almost on a daily basis now. And it's just a small little elbow at night. And she's not doing it because she's thinking like, I'm going to get stoned and I'm going to watch a Cheech and Chong movie 
I think a lot of people realize that that is, yeah, it was funny and those are great movies. Don't get me wrong. I love me some Cheech and Chong. Um, but you know, that is, that is not the majority of people who consume cannabis. There are probably more people who consume cannabis than you actually realize in your day to day life, but it's usually just microdosing small doses so you're functional and um i I think it's gonna become more and more like you come home after a long day of work you have a glass of wine to to unwind with your dinner i think you're gonna have come home from work you're gonna take a couple puffs off a a joint or a a pipe or a bong and you know relax while you're having dinner and i I think the the propaganda that have convinced people that cannabis makes you stupid or makes you lazy I think that's going away too. Um, we're seeing more and more science research that suggests that people who consume cannabis have lower BMIs on average. The lazy uh, pothead propaganda that we've been fed, I think, is dying. And I look very much look forward to that, that death. And wouldn't it be great if that stereotype of the lazy pothead went away? I've been smoking cannabis almost every day for over 30 years. And during that time, I was still able to get a few things done, like these podcasts, and, well, I wrote eight books also. Now, I did get a bit overweight a few years back, but without going on any kind of a diet and only counting calories, I managed to shed about 40 pounds, and I've kept that off for a long time now. So I'm doing my part to get rid of some of those ideas that people have about marijuana smokers. For now, however, I want to get this podcast out so that I can... uh, Get ready for next Monday's Live Salon to get that out to you as well. You see, on this coming Monday night, which will be November 15th, by the way, if you're hearing this later on, there will be a panel of lawyers joining us to answer your questions. And our topic's going to be Psychedelic Law for the People. And I hope to see you there. But for now, this is Lorenzo signing off from Cyberdelic Space. Namaste, my friends.